while they, while they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought um, the kingdom that the kingdom of God would appear at once. He said, "A man of noble birth was um, went to a different country." Um, a distant country. Um, so, so himself appointed to have himself appointed as king, and and then to return. So he so he called for his ten servants and gave them ten miners. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a degree declaration after him to um, to say, we don't want this man to be king. He was king, however, to, and returned home. He, 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 he sent the serve, he sent for the servants whom he had given the money, um, given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your money, um, your miner has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, he said. Um, his master replied, because, of, um, your, because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, you um, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your miner has earned five more. He, um, his, his, his master answered, um, you take charge of um, five cities. Um, then another servant came and said, Sir, your miner, ha um, here is your miner. I have kept it laid away um, in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. Um, you take out what you did not put in um, and reap, and reap the, um, what you did not sow. Um, his master replied, "I will judge you for um, I will judge you f um, by your own words, you um, you wicked servant." Um, his master replied, "Oh wait, um, you knew um, you knew, did you, that I am a hard man, t um, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why did the, um, why did then you put my money in?" Why didn't you then put my money in deposit so that I can, um, so when I come back, um, I could have collected it with, with interest? Um, then he said um, to those standing by, take his miner away from him and give it to the one who has ten miners. Sir, they said, he already has ten. Um, he replied, I tell you, I tell you, um, that to everyone who has more will be given, but um, for those who have nothing, um, even w what they have will be taken away. But those um, enemies of mine who do not want uh, me um, to be king over them, bring um, them here and kill them for um, in front of me. with voices and everything. Oh, thank you very much. Hi, everyone. In case you've forgotten me in the past several minutes, I am Pastor Brendan. I am delighted to be here bringing you the word. Um, 
especially delighted, in fact. Normally, we, uh, we work our way through Bible series, um, through a series of passages, and then we try and keep pretty uh, close to that schedule. And then occasionally, we get these one-offs where I get to sort of go off-road um, and, and do a, a sermon a little bit, uh, well, let's say, more independently. Um, and that's fun. And so you're going to enjoy that? You will enjoy that, I promise. Um, it's kind of going to be a little bit half uh, rapid-fire history lesson, half explanation of parable. Um, but I think it's important, and I think you'll like it, and I think uh, after you've heard it, it'll enrich the way that you read the New Testament in the future. So uh, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to talk about kings and about miners. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you've given it to us, and we pray that you open our heart to what you have to say tonight, and we pray that you open up your word to our hearts. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, um, I'm going to tell you a story. It's a historical story of kings and succession. Um, it's a story that Jesus' audience would have been familiar with uh, when he uh, told them this parable himself. Um, it's kind of a, it's the recent history for them. For us, it's ancient history. For them, it's recent history. And it colors the way they think about kings and they think about the idea of kings going places and coming back. Um, and when you have some of that rattling around in your head, um, when you read things like the way that they, they mocked Jesus calling him the king of the Jews, um, that starts to make uh, even more sense and gain more depth. So we're going to talk a little bit about these guys. Um, so I'm going to give you a brief but relevant history of the kings of Judea. Um, I'm going to start there. Um, but basically, around the year 130 BC, um, for the first time in hundreds of years, Judea, uh, Judah, you know, Jerusalem and the surrounding area, became its own independent nation again. Uh, if you remember kind of a rough timeline of what God's people went through in God's country, I've kind of sketched one up for you there. Um, they start out with some sort of half-decent kings a little bit when they start making their own kings, and then they get pretty worse uh, pretty quickly. They get less and less obedient to God. Finally, God permits the Babylonian Empire to roll up and demolish the temple and take the Jews into captivity. Later, the Persian Empire comes along, and they swat the Babylonians down in the same way. Ezra and Nehemiah, those books in the Old Testament, they tell the story of the Jews getting a little bit of extra leash um, by the uh, Persians to go back to their homeland to start rebuilding, still under the Persian power. Um, they rebuild the temple, they rebuild the wall. Um, not as great as the first time the temple and wall was built. Improvement over the smoking rubble they had when Babylon came by previously. That's when the Old Testament narrative kind of ends. Um, we sort of run out of story there because around about that 400 BC mark, we get what's called the intertestamental period. It's a time between the Old and the New Testaments. And we don't have any scripture about that time because it's at that point that God has basically ceased sending prophets. He's told the people what he wants them to know. They know they are to expect a Messiah who is going to restore them to him. Um, but he ceases sending prophets at this time and the people are kind of left to wildly fend for themselves and they go just about as well as you might expect um, without God's guidance. But during this intertestamental period, Alexander the Great, the great Macedonian conqueror, um, creating the Greek Empire, rolls through. He smashes the Persians. Um, Israel's kind of a small fry country, or Judah is a pretty small fry region, but it gets rolled up. The Greeks end up with Israel as part of their territory as well. That lasts about 200 years before the Greek Empire implodes. A group of those guys called the Seleucids had hold of Judah for a while. And finally, the Jews mount this rebellion called the Maccabean Revolt. 
and they're free at last at around about 130 BC. Um, some betrayal and stuff happens. Eventually, everything shakes out. A guy called John Hiranicus um, is in charge. Sorry, John Hyrcanus. I keep saying Hiranicus, a different character. John Hyrcanus, okay? That's this guy. We have a whole bunch of coins with these guys' images on it, which is pretty cool. Um, John Hyrcanus was the guy who ended up in charge around this time. He never called himself king. He was called an ethnarch. That's like the, the leader of the people. You know, he didn't dare quite call himself king. Um, happy enough to call himself high priest, though. Uh, and he reigned for a little while, and then when he was dying, he left instructions that the country should be governed by his wife and that his eldest son should become high priest. Now, his eldest son was this guy called Aristobulus. Oops, I'm going way too fast, too quickly. Yep, okay. I'm going to kind of scroll these up, right? So the one at the bottom is the one most recent I'm talking about. Um, his eldest son is Aristobulus, and this isn't good enough for him. He wants to both have leadership of the nation and to be high priest. Um, so the first thing he does is he locks his mother in prison until she starves to death. He locks up his three other brothers, um, and after making an alliance with his one brother, he's got five, uh, four brothers in total, makes an alliance with his second oldest brother, locks up the other three brothers so they can't dispute his rule. He declares himself not only king, but high priest of God. This is kind of a problem because kings are not supposed to be priests. Kings are supposed to be descendant of David. Aristobulus is not a descendant of David. Um, priest is supposed to be descendant of Aaron, and, Arist and Aristobulus is not a descendant of Aaron. Nonetheless, that's what happens. Um, he marries a woman as wicked as he is, whose name is Salome, Alexandra Salome. Um, and when Aristobulus becomes sick, he's going to die. Queen Salome, she's been pretty much running things for a while now, decides she doesn't very much get along with Antigonus, who is his close brother, the one he had an alliance with. And she doesn't much like the idea of ending up uh, trying to rule the country alongside him. Because they have no children. Jewish law says that when you... Um, when a, a man dies and, gives his, uh, and has given his wife no children, then she's married to the next brother in line. Okay, so she looks at the next brother in line and says, not a big fan. Um, so she, convinced, she connives a plot to have this brother killed. Um, she waits for a moment to strike, and she finds a time when Antigonus, this second brother, he gets a new set of armor, and she sees this opportunity. She tells him, oh, I'm sure that the king would love to see your new set of armor. You're such a handsome warrior. I'll tell him to expect you. She goes back to her husband, the king, and says, Oh, my king, your brother is coming to kill you. He's decked out for war. Um, <laughs> you should definitely have some protection. And the king, at this point, says, Oh, no, gods, if my treacherous brother comes along and he looks like he's looking for a fight, you put him down right away. And that's exactly what happens. Um, Antigonus you know, jumps out of a pot plant. Ta-da! Um, stabbed dead. One brother down. Days later, that king dies of the sickness he is suffering from. Two brothers down. Um, queen Salome is going through them like Pringles. She gets the third brother in line. She releases the other three brothers from jail. She says, I am so sorry um, that you had to go through that terrible imprisonment. It was never really my idea, especially you, Alexander. You were always the cute one. And she marries him. Alexander is now the oldest. Alexander Janaeus. Um, he becomes high priest. He becomes king. Marries Salome. Um, she's working her way through these handful of brothers. Um, this one rules for about 30 years. Um, conquers some more land, has two sons of his own, Hyrcanus II and Aristobulus II. Right? Alexander himself is a fan of the Sadducees um, because they didn't care about the fact that he was both king and priest. 
This is a problem for the Pharisees. Those guys did not like that very much. They thought that was a great violation of the law. Um, Salome remained loyal to her husband during this time, but um, there was a disastrous civil war which Alexander barely wins. A war kind of prompted by the Pharisees um, stirring up the other side of it. And in response, Alexander brutally punishes 800 or so Pharisees who um, he blamed for inciting this rebellion. He has their wives and their children murdered in front of them and then crucifies them. Okay? Um, pretty brutal stuff. Unsurprisingly, people stop messing with him for a little while and a kind of a tense peace exists after this. On his deathbed, Alexander gives the kingdom of Judea over to his wife. He says, Salome, you can rule now. It would be very good if you made peace with those Pharisees who I was very, very mean to. Salome gets back into power, and this time she's queen of Judea herself. Um, she makes peace with the Pharisees. Um, she elevates them to a new level of respect as a kind of a, a sort of a ruling class. They get that high court status where they get to decide on cases of, of faith and of law. So that's why Jesus gets dragged before the Pharisees um, in the story of the, the, of the arrest and the crucifixion. It's because she sets them up there to do that. Um, she sets up her son, Hyrcanus II, as high priest. Um, and then after she's getting ready to, to pass on herself, she decrees that Hyrcanus is going to be king as well. Um, this doesn't go super well. Uh, Hyrcanus reigns for about three months as priest king before his brother Aristobulus. He hires a bunch of mercenaries, forces him to surrender both the kingship and the priesthood. Um, and this is a long story, bear with me. Um, Hyrcanus knows this can't last. He starts looking for alternatives. Now, he's got a good friend called Antipater. Antipater is from Idumea. Um, that's the land of what used to be called the Edomites. Okay, if you remember the Edomites from Scripture, it's those guys. His grandfather conquered their land, integrated them into the people, and they had started interbreeding with the Jews through that time and intermarrying. So they round up a bunch of mercenaries and they lay siege to the city they've just lost. Um, this goes on for months. And this is where the Romans finally start entering the scene because their story is kind of happening off screen. Um, they're allies of, uh, John, of John Hyrcanus' family, the Hasmonean family. Um, but the Hasmoneans know that the Romans are the next big power. They've got armies for days. They're really the ones to rely on if they need extra firepower. Ultimately, Rome chooses Hyrcanus, um, this brother. The, uh, they decide he should be the ruler rather than his, uh, his other brother, Antigonus, the one who had just taken over. Um, or Aristobulus, I should say. So they invade Jerusalem. The Romans come in, they smash the place down, they do a lot of damage to the place. Aristobulus II is dragged off to Rome with his two sons as kind of a political trophy. What a wonderful time to be alive in Jerusalem. All these kings, this is like going through pretty quickly. This is over like a 40 year period. All of this has happened so far. Um, of uh, Aristobulus and his two sons, they all end up getting dragged off to Rome. One of them will survive, the other two will die there and around there. Um, Rome makes Hyrcanus the high priest, um, but then they decide, actually, this advisor, uh, Antipater, the Idumean, they're gonna make him the regional ruler. They don't quite make him king, but they think he is better to be in charge of things. Um, and Hyrcanus himself much prefers to be priest than ruler anyway. That kind of goes along pretty well. Antipater has spent most of his life buddying up to the Romans. His sons know the Roman sons. And, um, Antipater, in fact, has a, uh, a moment of glory. Oops, I'm skipping through things. Antipater has a moment of glory where um, Julius Caesar, an up and coming general of some power, is under siege in Egypt. 
and he decides he is going to, uh, to make something of himself. He rounds up a few thousand uh, Jewish soldiers and goes down and saves the day and saves Julius Caesar in battle. For that, he is um, given great glory. They decide that, this, that the Jews are great friends of the Romans. And then for the rest of history, Jews and Romans are wonderful friends. That's not true. That doesn't happen. Um, they do start off with this very solid relationship, though. Um, Antipater and Julius Caesar, very good friends. Um, Antipater has two sons. The older son is called Phaziel, the younger son is called Herod. You will know Herod. Um, they're given power to rule Judea in two portions when Antipater finally dies. Phaziel, the older son, gets Jerusalem, he gets the bigger part of Judea. Herod gets Galilee, the sort of the crummy side bit that no one particularly wants. Three years later, Rome starts having some troubles of their own. A rival empire has jumped up. They are called the Parthians. They chase Rome across the map. They drive them temporarily out of this region. Suddenly, all of that power that Herod and, um, and Antipater were relying upon to keep them safe, to keep them in power, is gone, and this new empire, the Parthians, have shown up. And they decide they're going to install a king who is friendly to them. And they happen to have dug up Antigonus II, he is the son of Aristobulus, who got dragged off to Rome earlier. All right, you following? All right, he is a total fruit loop. He is very angry and very vengeful. Um, he gets put in power there. The Romans um, are driven off, and he enjoys this very much. He reigns there for about three years. He is the last king of the Hasmonean family. Um, and so he captures his uncle, high priest Hyrcanus, um, he captures Phaziel. He doesn't quite manage to capture Herod. Herod escapes. He goes to his uncle in captivity, and, uh, and his uncle in whom he sees the source of much misery. He blames the death of his father on, um, and in a very horrifically Shakespearean kind of scene, he bites off his ears. Um, painful and ugly, to be sure, but importantly, now he's been physically maimed, Hyrcanus will forever be ineligible for the office of high priest, the thing he really prided himself in doing and he'll live as a kind of a disfigured reminder of this new king's power. Phaziel sees this happen, and he escapes a similar face by dashing his head against the wall of the prison, knowing that his brother Herod has escaped to go and find the Romans and hopefully take revenge someday. This is exactly what happens. Now we're at around about 40 BC, okay? 40 or so years before Christ is born. Here, here you go. Okay, now we're at Rome. Herod comes to Rome, he stands before the senators in Rome, um, Julius Caesar is dead at this time, Rome is a republic rather than an empire for the moment. Um, he stands before the senators and Mark Antony, Julius Caesar's old friend who is kind of in charge of the army, and he asks them to make him king. Rome is hesitant, but Mark Antony, who is Caesar's best friend, um, he knows Herod's family, he says this man is the son of a hero and a friend of Rome, they crown him king of the Jews. They give him a Roman army with which he is to retake Jerusalem, they take him back, um, they go back to Jerusalem, and Herod conquers Jerusalem again. Antigonus, this, um, the last of the Hasmoneans, the one who had caused them such trouble, is captured, he is scourged and crucified. Um, the first uh, foreign king, or the first king to which the uh, Romans will ever do this to, but obviously not the last. Herod the Great rules Jerusalem. He names some towns and monuments after his lost brother, uh, he invites poor Hyrcanus, who's been maimed and can't be high priest anymore, um, who's been living in exile for a little while, to, to come back and live out his days with honor at his table. 
and this will last until Hyrcanus is about 80 years old and Herod becomes old and paranoid, accuses him of plotting against him and has him killed. Whew. Herod lives a long paranoid life. Late in his life, he gets involved in a particular debacle with the temple. He's done a very huge building project. He's made much bigger walls. He spruced the place up considerably. Um, but then he decides he wants to put a giant golden eagle over the, over the uh, entrance to the temple. Giant golden eagle is a symbol of Rome's power. Um, so two teachers of the law, two rabbi-type figures, and 40 of their students briefly seize control of the temple. They drag down this golden eagle. They break it apart with axes. Herod does the only rational thing and arrests them all and burns them to death. He defends his action. He says, this is, this is the Hasmonean family's fault. They're plotting against me. They're trying to sow dissent. And like a lot of kings throughout history, he uses this as an excuse to persecute those he sees might be his rivals. He has any male descendants of John Hyrcanus' line eradicated. This is not the last time he will go on a crazy slaughtering spree trying to stop an alternate king of the Jews from cropping up. Because this is that Herod. We know that years later, uh, three traveling Gentile wise men will request an audience with Herod. They are following signs and mystical direction which they believe will lead them to a place where the true king of the Jews is born. Now we are back in the story that we know. We know Herod flips his lid. He's missed another one. There's someone out there who's going to leap out of the darkness and try and bite his ears off. Um, he orders a wide-scale massacre of the male children to try and negate this possibility, and Jesus escapes by divine providence. They are warned by the angels to get out of there. Finally, Herod dies an excruciating death, one that he has so richly earned, um, at the hands of a sort of a putrefying illness that is henceforth known as Herod's curse or Herod's evil. Um, Herod's three sons, he has uh, Archelaus, Archelaus, Antipas, and Philip. Um, they stand to inherit the kingdom, and the question is, who's going to get which part? Who's going to get the crummy backwaters like Galilee? Who's going to be like king of the Jews with Jerusalem and all that good stuff? Uh, in this story, it turns out that Antipas is the sucker, and um, Archelaus is the schemer. Uh, Antipas, Herod Antipas, was poised to inherit the kingdom. His father had favored him his whole life until a few days before his death, at which point he had apparently composed a new will that had written him out entirely. If this sounds suspicious to you, it certainly did sound suspicious to him. Um, Archelaus then presumes he's going to be king. He sets himself up with pretensions of kingship. He does this shortly before Passover is about to occur. He dresses in white. He ascends a golden throne. He, uh, he treats cordially with the Jewish people. Um, he promises to be a kinder, gentler Herod than the one before him. He plans to release political prisoners to generally be less awful. The crowd likes this, but they start pressing him. They're still angry about the 42 people who got burned to death earlier. Um, they want justice for those teachers and those students. They want Herod's uh, family puppet high priest to be deposed and replaced with a real, like a proper high priest of good character. And Achaelius kind of grits his teeth. This is not the king's welcome he was hoping for. But he tells him that he will look into these matters and he's sure it'll be fine if they are patient with him until Rome officially makes him king of the Jews. He tells him it'll be fine, just wait. Then he goes off to feast with his friends a day or two after his father has died. That night, the feast is interrupted by sounds of wailing and mourning. A huge crowd is beginning to gather at the temple, for they are there grieving the 42 who were burned there. Uh, political agitators are um, 
taking advantage of this. They are, they are gaining recruits from this mob of people who were angry um, at Herod Achelius. Um, and Achelius tries to reason with them to get them to stop. He starts sending messages one by one. He sends a general to reason with them. He sends servants to reason with them. He finally sends a Roman tribune to reason with them. And the crowd stones each of them, killing some of them as they come one at a time. Now, if this reminds you vaguely of a parable of a similar kind, Jesus is probably drawing on that imagery. Then they turn back to their sacrifices in their mourning after they've murdered these men. And at midnight, Achelius has had enough and probably had enough to drink as well. He orders the army into the temple. They massacre about 3,000 people there. He sends heralds around the city to tell them that Passover is cancelled this year. This is not something that usually happens. Then he goes quickly to Caesar because he knows that he's done something pretty extreme. Now Augustus Caesar is in charge, the emperor of Rome. And he goes there like his father had and asks to be made king of the Jews. But he finds that as he's going there, his brother, Herod Antipas, has come too, and he's brought a delegation of others with him who are saying, we do not want him to be king. They argue, but Augustus finally decides that actually, no, Achelius, you are going to be your father's successor, but you'll have to earn the title of king. He names him Ethnarch, not quite king, but leader of the people, and he's given governance over Judea. His brother, Herod Antipas, is made governor of Galilee. This is the Herod that Jesus ends up interacting with in his story when uh, Pilate says, he's from Galilee, right? That's Herod's problem, and shoves him sideways. That's that Herod. Meanwhile, around about this time, Mary and Joseph are coming back from Egypt. Um, Matthew's Gospel records a really remarkable scene. It's one of my uh, personal favorites because it suggests that the angels can make minor mistakes or can maybe even jump the gun. Um, an angel comes to Joseph in a dream and tells him, Herod is dead, you can return to Judea, presumably to Bethlehem, to his hometown. They start heading there, and then he gets another dream, kind of an update, that says, actually, the new ruler of Judea is pretty bad as well. Consider moving to Galilee, <laughs> um, which they do. I like to think the second angel is the first angel's manager, um, who had to step in and explain it's this other angel's first day, Jumped the gun on the all clear. <laughs> we may never know precisely what's happening there, but there you go. He gets two consecutive dreams, one that says everything's fine and one that says, oh, actually, asterisk, just pull right and you'll be fine. Um, <laughs> uh, ten years later, Archelaus marries another man's wife. Um, that man is still alive. This is a violation of the Jewish law. The Pharisees complain to Caesar. This is a violation of their law. Caesar banishes Herod Achelius to the far end of the empire, and henceforth the Romans decide they will send their own governors to rule over the area, governors like Pontius Pilate, who will be the governor by the time Jesus comes to be crucified. Judea is just too volatile to be left to the rulership of Jewish kings. Now, why did we spend all that time talking about this gory succession of Jewish kings? Well, broadly... When I learned about this stuff, it completely changed the way I read the New Testament. I started saying, oh, this parable relates to this thing. Uh, this mention relates to this thing. This name means something to me now. Um, particularly when I read anything about the people demanding a king and what they expected a king to be or do or why they might be afraid of that. Um, or when Jesus tells parable about parables about rulers sending messengers who get killed or about um, tension and decisions of the power players around the crucifixion 
all that kind of gains a little extra depth. But tonight I wanted this to be in our minds when we look over this parable because Jesus is clearly drawing on parts of that history when he explains to them this parable. Because this is not ancient history for those people. This is ancient history for us. It's meaningful context to them. And when Jesus compares himself in this parable to a returning king who punishes those who are in opposition to him, he's using a very graphically violent allusion and probably the strongest he could have invoked because this is a matter as severe as life and death. It's a simple parable, really, with a couple of parts, a couple of odd parts. There's one like it in the Gospel of Matthew that most people are more familiar with called the parable of the talents. You might know that one. In that one, there's a businessman who has uh, three of his servants. He gives them varying sums of money. They go away. Two of them come back having done well. They've earned twice as much from what they got. The last one buried it in the ground because he didn't want to, like he was afraid that his master was a harsh man in the same way. He uses a lot of the same language. There's a discussion about whether or not these are the same parable, but they're told in two different places. This one's told in Jericho. Um, The other one's told in the Mount of Olives. So it looks like Jesus is merely using the same content twice for two different stories. And there are subtle enough differences. But that's why we're doing this one rather than the parable of the talents. He tells them at those two different times. And this one he tells for a specific reason, which we're told in that first verse. He says he's on his way to Jerusalem. And the people around him, his collection of disciples, they think that he's going to overthrow the Roman governor and declare himself king of the Jews. And that's going to happen right away. Jesus knows it's not going to work like that. He is going to die, he is going to rise, he's going to ascend. And then after a considerable period of time, at least 2,000 years now and running, he will return. In the meantime, he doesn't want his followers standing around like turkeys doing nothing. They have stuff to do. So he gives them this parable. A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed as king and then to return. And a modern reader will read this. They go, why do you go to another country to be made king? What's the point of that? Aren't kings usually appointed by succession? What a weird way to govern. But the people who heard this knew exactly what was going on. Like Herod, like Herod's son, Achaelius, this noble-born person is going to a greater king somewhere else who is going to bestow on him the authority to rule. And when he returns, he'll have absolute authority and no one will be able to gainsay him. And heaven help anyone who worked against him. And he gets ten of his servants. He gives each of them a single mina or minor or mine. Um, We'll go with minor. A minor is worth a couple of months' wages. Now this is the difference between the parable of talents and this one, the parable of the minors. Talents are worth like... 20 years wages or some super extravagant sum of money. It's an enormous amount of wealth. A miner is about two months wages. It's several thousand dollars. There's nothing to sneeze at. It's not a crazy amount of money though. Um, And they're told to put it to work until he comes back. Now an interesting line follows that. His subjects hated him and they sent a delegation after him to say we don't want this man to be king. The same thing that happened between Herod's two sons. He was made king, and he returned home. Ten were given money to use, but the resolution focuses on only three. The first one has used what he was given, and he's earned ten times as much. The master praises him lavishly. He gives him authority over ten cities in this newly acquired kingdom that he has received. The second's made five times as much. The master holds off on the lavish praise a little bit, but gives him five cities to govern over because he knows he can trust him. 
Then comes along the third servant, where the turn in this story comes. So the third servant has done nothing with this money, and he makes an excuse. He says, I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take what you do not put in. You reap what you do not sow. Translation is, what's the point? I figured if I made the money, you'd just take it. You'd take the profit. And if I lost your money, you'd probably have me punished because you're a hard man. So I have nothing to gain by doing this. Here's your money back. Obviously, this servant does not have a high opinion of his master. He thinks that his master is cruel, that he's going to deprive him, um, that he's not worth serving in some sense. But the point of this story, by, the way, by this point in the story, this fear has already been made to look ridiculous. Not only does the master um, not take the money from the other servants, he rewards them with honor and authority over cities. But then he calls the wicked servants bluff. The master replies, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Then why didn't you put my money on deposit so when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? That's the minimum action that someone would do if they were genuinely afraid of their master's wrath. If he was really afraid of being punished, he could have safely deposited that little bit of money and gotten a little bit extra. But he's done nothing of that sort. And that inaction shows not fear of punishment, it shows contempt for his master. So he doesn't care about him. He doesn't really think that he's worth serving, and he will do as little as he can to get away with not serving him. Either he was so disinterested in his master's wishes and badly misjudged the master's character, or else he was betting that he wasn't going to be king at all. And this whole process was ridiculous. The master says... Take his mina away from him, his miner away from him, and give it to the one who has ten miners. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has more will be given, but as to the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. What an awful thing to say. And Jesus knows it's an awful thing to say because he has the servants in the story go, what? And react really badly to it being said. But what does it mean? The meaning is clearer if you add the implied words there. To everyone who has created a profit, more will be given. But as for the one who has made nothing, even what they have will be taken away. The good servants were obedient, even though they didn't know the fullness of the picture. They didn't know the reward they were going to get. They were just told to put the money to work, and they did, with an incomplete vision of what would come after. They made their master money. They made him Lots of money. The first servant takes his $8,000 or so. He comes back with $88,000. That's a 1,000% profit. That is incredible. What's that worth to a king? Almost nothing. It's a speck of wealth. It's the entire wealth-making enterprise that they went through here has no monetary valuable value to the man who sent them to do it. Because now he is king who has cities he can just give away. But it would show who was faithfully obedient and obedient with the small things so they could be trusted with greater matters of rulership of cities in the kingdom to come. The period between the king leaving and the king returning is a test of faithfulness that reveals the character of the servants. That's it. Then we get to our final verse, which is most severe. Oop. These PowerPoints are getting away from me. Um, but those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Not unlike what some of the other kings in the story did with their enemies. 
The king in the story does what kings do to people who oppose them and undermine their kingdoms. He has those who have proven themselves to be his enemies killed because that is what earthly kings do. Now, this is not a deep metaphor. Likewise, we know that when Jesus returns as king of all creation, he will give to those who hate him and defy his rulership exactly what they have explicitly wanted, to be totally separated from him and not subject to his rule. The Bible calls that place hell. It's variously described as outer darkness, as a place of wailing and gnashing of teeth, as a lake of fire, and however literal any of those descriptions turn out specifically to be, it is a place suitable only for those who would rather be king of their own dark, miserable world than a servant in God's fabulous heaven. And this parable suggests something about the eternal fate of three distinct groups. Those who openly defy and mock God will receive separation from him, and that's the separation they crave because they refuse to recognize that he is Lord. Those who genuinely serve him in this world with what they have been given will have their faithfulness recognized and in some manner they'll be commended after judgment. It probably won't be with the literal rulership of cities. That wouldn't make an awful lot of sense. Who would be living in those cities if everyone is ruling them? We don't get to know exactly what God has planned for us after the resurrection, really. But we can know that we have a good God who is deserving of our faithfulness. But it's this third group, that third servant who makes up the third group that is really the, the turning point of this parable. The one who played the part of a servant of a master he actually despised. The kind of person that Jesus is constantly referring to in his discourses. The goats who are going to be separated out from the sheep, the, the chaff or the tares that must be separated from the wheat. The one who says, Lord, I did all these things in your name and then the Lord will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Now, every time this figure is mentioned when Jesus speaks, it's normally common for a few people uh, listening to a sermon like this to have a mini crisis of faith, wondering if it's possible to live a life where you think you are serving God and then have the rug pulled out from under you at the last minute because you weren't trying hard enough or you didn't know something. The third servant is not a warning saying, hey, have you hit your minimum quota of divine service? to qualify for salvation. If not, you might be a, not only not a sheep, but a secret goat. This is a warning about people who are faking their faith. Those who provide lip service to the worship of God and who think that lip service and going through the motions of church life is what will earn them eternal life. And when they go to judgment, when Jesus tells them he never knew them, they won't be broken-hearted because they tried faithfully and missed the mark. They will be outraged and horrified because the transactional relationship they thought they had with God, I'll do a little for you, you do a little for me, we'll get along, will not be recognized by God as a saving relationship. And they refuse to recognize they need anything more than that. Now, if that is the relationship that you have with God, you think that you scratch his back and he will scratch yours, I beg you to think again. That idea won't serve you very well in judgment and it's unlikely even to serve you very well past your first family tragedy in this life. You need to know God not as your equal, but as your king. And once you know him as your king, you get the awesome privilege of knowing him as your friend. But for those who are serving God, 
The meaning of this parable is clear. Yes, we are living for the glory of a world to come, but you were born into this world between the day that Jesus ascended to heaven and the day he will return and bring heaven to earth. And this is not just empty time in which nothing matters. We're not just running out the clock. The way that we serve God in this life with our time, our resources, our skills that we have, that grows us closer to God. And it embodies the faith that we claim to have. This is a call from God to be fully the thing that we were made to be, whatever that is. To live out the responsibility that comes with all the blessings we are given. Now what you have been blessed with specifically is something that you will have to take your lifetime to grapple with. Those capacities will change over time. There aren't many 15-year-olds who have the capacity to serve God through outrageous financial generosity, for example. There aren't many 88-year-olds who can serve God through the pursuit of the beauty of the excellence of salsa dancing. But while spiritual gifts are certainly a portion of this as well, I dare not limit this idea, as we're explaining it, to explicitly spiritual gifts. Um, they are to be used in this life in service of our master. Um, and that's a valid and wonderful and powerful expression for the service of his kingdom. But it's not just that. What matters here is the lens that we look through, the perspective we carry into every day of our life and every decision that we make. When we make a, decision, a significant decision to do one thing or to do another, to sleep in or to get up a little early and go into work to take the pressure off the team, to give up the pursuit of art for the sake of a career stability or to give up the career stability for the sake of art, um, to leave a talent unexpressed and undeveloped or to accept the burden that you're going to be really bad at it for a really long time before you're any good at all. It's also worth noting as a last point that there's no servant listed in this parable, even though there were seven left Jesus could have described, who tries to invest this money to make more but then loses it in bad fortune and has to explain to his master, it's gone, sorry. And the reason there is no servant in the parable of that type is because you can't fail. If you live your life in the wholehearted pursuit of God, seeking to serve in all the ways you're able and to be excellent in those things in which you are gifted, you can't fail. There is no tried but failed scenario. Even if you fail, you can't fail because the king doesn't need the money. He needs servants of character for his kingdom. And likewise, if everything you strive towards falls apart in your hands through your lifetime, if you keep your faith and you refuse to become bitter and you live in the joy of being a saved child of God, then you have succeeded, not because you've made a difference in the world or left a legacy or made something so amazing no one will ever forget it, but because you have become the kind of person whose whole life was about serving God. The only way to fail is not to try at all. And as was pointed out, it is New Year's resolution season again. Now is the time to make the change you've been putting off, to shake off the lethargy and commit to some new direction to which God has been calling you or lacking that specific call to try and develop a certain talent that you know you've always neglected but you know that if you had developed it, you would delight to use it in the service of God. Your empty hands are the treasure entrusted to you by God. And I encourage you, brothers and sisters, to thank God for them and then put them to work for him.
Let's pray. Father God, we recognize you as the author of all blessings and the giver of all we have. From the greatest gift of all, the sacrifice of your son Jesus who saves us, to the little things in our life that we barely think about, our spare hours, our disposable income, our quiet dreams, our hopeful ambitions. In gratitude for that first gift, Lord, help us to turn all our other gifts to your service. Help us to put to work the things that you've given us in a way that pleases and glorifies you, that announces your gospel to the world, that fills the world with the beauty you'd approve of and the kindness and generosity that flows from your heart. Each of us holds a wealth of gifts in our life for which we need your direction, Father. Show us the way and give us the heart to obey so that when we do leave this world behind for the next one, we will know that we haven't lived idly, but we've lived the full godly life that you intended. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.